Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and we're going to be spending some time together for the next hour. Joined as usual as my by my co-host Greg Nicholson, whose eyes are glued to the cricket that's going on right now. Greg, how are you doing? I'm not too bad. I'm better than it looks for New Zealand at the moment. Man, what a great line. I don't I don't know anything about cricket, but it looks it looks like yeah, thirty-one four, two innings, target four hundred. That's that's pretty. I think that's average. You're by, just reading numbers off the screen. By global you? standards, I'd say that's well within. <laughs> that's well within you know the data we'd expect over the past five to ten years. The last quarter. Okay, that's 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 pretty good to go. Also loving the weather today. I'm in shorts. I feel incredible. Um, long may this weather continue. I mean, we have a lot of sort of political stories in the country and so on that can make things feel pretty gloomy. So if nothing else. The weather is wonderful, at least it is here in Joburg, so we're, you know, the happiest of cats. Um, a lot of what we've been discussing, Greg, um, sort of came out of nowhere. So our eyes have been, like, focused on the elections. Uh, the local elections have wrapped up recently, and our eyes have been focused on what's going on with the Treasury, what's going on with the President. And out of nowhere, over the past couple of days, or seemingly out of nowhere, came these protests school in Pretoria and we see these images of, of what appear to be young girls you know between you know 13 14 15 we see a police presence and it's you know what's going on so I know you went over to Pretoria yesterday and I'd love to just give us a timeline of what's going on over there yeah um black students of Pretoria um Pretoria high school for girls have cited long sort of long standing grievances over race issues and and claims of racism and um black students being i guess isolated and targeted for the way they look, their culture, their language. Um, and they cite examples of favoritism towards white students and, um, a sort of forced assimilation to the, to the school's, uh, ostensibly white culture mm. and history. Mm. And things, I think, sort of came to a head. Okay. Um, <laughs> things came to a head recently. Um, when, when at the school there was certain instances, I think it was last week, and yep. then they really escalated and led to some of these girls actually standing up and protesting on Saturday at their spring fair. I mean, it's, 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 like I said, it seemed to be out of nowhere, but the second this happened, we, we saw a lot of response from alumni, current students, former students, not only of this school, but other schools saying that, that what they're hearing and what we're hearing is not, it's not news, it's not new. So to talk us through this, we have Sinazo Magatlele, who's a former Pretoria Girl student, and she matriculated quite recently, matriculated in 2015, to give us some more context. Um, Sinazo, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Okay, please. wonderful. So, Sinazo, I mean, you heard me just talking to Greg and trying to figure out, you know, what's going on, what seems to be a surprise for some of us who haven't attended some of these institutions. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd love if you could just give us, you know, and really, you know, your your experience. What was your experience of of attending Pretoria Girls, Pretoria Girls High? What, what is your experience as a black student, as a black woman in that in that environment? Okay. Um, I think I'll sort of start off by saying that I went to Pretoria High School for Girls um, from 2011 until 2015 when I matriculated. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, if you kind of look at the school's mission statement, um, uh, the school founded in 1902 and Edith Aitken basically talks about kind of multiculturalism and, and, and diversity mm. um, and bringing up well-rounded young ladies. And I think during my time at Girls High, um, I suppose in hindsight, still, uh, looking back at it, it's kind of showing me how there were, I suppose, a lot of instances where, where um, Aitken's um, vision was probably undermined. Um, and I think I'll start with, um, I think it was in 2013 or 2012, um, where one of the white girls 
basically uh, addressing, so we have assembly and the teachers leave and we're addressed by the head girl. Um, and the head girl basically addressing black girls and said to us that our hair was static um, and that she basically wanted us to tie our hair up um, and put our hair kind of to neaten our hair up. Mm. Um, and all of this is basically, basically grounded. The school has um, a code of conduct which has since been suspended, um, basically that has strict rules about dreadlocks and afros and, and braids, and our braids have to be, I think it's a maximum of one centimeter um, in width. Mm. And I know some of my friends telling me specifically that they've had teachers walking around with rulers measuring the width of someone's braid. Um, there's strict rules about kind of hair color and your hair. If you have braids, your braids have to match your natural hair color mm. um, and kind of basically strict policing um, of, of hair in general, but more specifically um, black girls' hair and making sure that we stipulate every kind of what kind of hairstyles we can have and, and, and restrictions and requirements on those hairstyles. Um, and basically, whenever, if you talk about the code of conduct, we're forced to sign that every single year. Um, and if and if you don't sign it, there are repercussions. Um, and in terms of, uh, and, and whenever we kind of say anything about, but hang on, why is this there? It's always, well, this is what is in the code of conduct, and you sign the code of conduct, so you have to adhere to those rules. And if you don't like those rules, then, you know, you can always go to another school. Um, and I think the, the problem, I think, with the schools of this nature is they kind of hide behind this idea of being a prestigious school. Mm. So the idea um, that, that you, you're very privileged and you're very lucky to come to the school, so you kind of just have to go along with all of the rules because, hey, at least you're not in a less, less kind of a disadvantaged school somewhere else. Um, I think also moving on to kind of some issues and some stuff that I've experienced is... Um, when I was in grade eight to nine, I was taught by a black teacher at the school, or two black teachers, and kind of moving on. And once I moved away from those teachers and looking at kind of people around me and talking about these black teachers, there was always uh, if, a, if a girl said she was going to the teacher's class, it was always like, oh, she's a horrible teacher, or she doesn't know what she's doing. So there's been kind of several attacks on their accents with, mm. with the other teacher. I'm not going to kind of name those subjects and names, because I think That's I would make it really obvious. Yeah especially because there are very few black teachers at the school. Mm. Um, and, and basically mocking these teachers and, and, and questioning their credibility to teach the subjects that they teach. And I mean, I was taught by these teachers. I did really well at school. I think um, for, one of the, for one of the subjects, about 90%, for the other one, I did really, really well. And that was literally because I was taught by those teachers and, and I took down what those teachers um, were telling me and I was able to kind of put that together and get, get good marks. So for me, the claim that somehow they don't know what they're doing or they're bad teachers, I think, is, is, is based um, purely on the color of their skin and the way that they speak and the fact that some girls don't like the way in which they deal, um, that, the, that the teachers would conduct themselves in classes. Um, we have certain teachers if, that are called in or, or called upon to basically tell black girls to calm down or to, if there's ever a situation um, where black girls are kind of seem to kind of be a little bit unruly, you have black teachers, black teachers called in to police that situation, um, there was another member of staff um, at, at the school who would make who would make announcements, and there would be frequent mocking of her accent, um, and those people not respecting her, not listening to her. Um, uh, uh, and, and and I mean, some of the comments that some of the girls would make, they felt confident to make them to their to their fellow uh, to to our teachers' colleagues, um, and nothing was ever done about that. There was there's never been an instance. Um, where where girls have been where girls have been brought into kind of a question and said you can't speak to people like this is extremely disrespectful. Um, so I think those are some of the experiences that I've kind of seen and the idea that somehow um, uh, being expressing your identity, expressing blackness only works 
if you can do it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't in the RCL, and I was never in any of the RCL, which are the representative council of learner meetings um, or a prefect. And um, I was told that whenever anyone brought kind of any suggestion, it was shut down, and that was kind of well, we're we're basing all of this in tradition and um, uh, uh, and and neatness, and we have to make sure that we're adhering to the strict history of of the school and upholding that. I mean, this idea that somehow the school's image or outside comes comes before the needs or, or, or the lack that exists within the school, I and mean, that those have to be sacrificed, which is well, Girls High is a prestigious school, and so therefore um, we have to, 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 to adhere to that. Okay, so thanks, Inazo. Um, I just wanted to ask, I mean, I'm hearing some feedback from people who, who just don't seem to understand what the fuss is about, and, and, mm-hmm. and sort of their... Their sort of stance is like, you know, offices have rules. You have to dress a certain way to go to, you know, a lot of formal workplaces. Schools mm-hmm. generally have rules. You know, and most people who've been through formal schooling had to have some kind of rules. So the, the the general feeling from some people is what's the big deal? Rules are rules. If your hair has to be like that, that's how society works. So what, what is it about these rules that, 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 that you, you feel was oppressive or discriminatory? And uh, well, um, so I think that it 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 goes far beyond kind of the hair. I think that the hair is an example. Um, I think that the idea. So um, I I I do laws this. I'm I'm a first year student, and we had case law where I think it was the NEC for Education versus Calais, um, who who basically uh, took on um, I think it was Durban Girls High School for not allowing the daughter to wear a nose ring for for religious purposes. And in that um, kind of in in that ruling, the Constitutional Court basically found that. Um, a, a, a code of conduct can be uh, can be taken away and can be, de- can be deemed non void if they're mm. discriminatory. Mm. And I think um, basically my point with this is that policing of hair and making sure um, that people's hair looks a certain way, um, I think is 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 a bit outdated. Um, I don't think that someone's appearance or someone's hair has any bearing on 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 their intelligence or, or how they carry themselves. Um, I think that there is, there's, obviously there's neatness, but I think that the whole idea of neatness is, is, is I mean, brazen efforts can all be neat. Um, I think that it's kind of Western standards of neatness, and this idea that somehow you need to police people's hair in order to control them, which have some kind of hold on them. Um, and I think it goes deeper than that, because I think um, I, was, I was interacting with some other friends of mine. I was hearing stories of how girls were told um, that they would not be allowed to write exams, uh, would not be able to carry on writing exams if their hair was like that. Um, I heard yesterday that there was a girl who was told that her hair looks like a bird's nest. And I think the issue here is that you're dealing with young girls. You're, you're exposing them to harsh criticisms like this. You, what are you saying about their, their, their blackness? Um, and I think that that's an important point about their dignity and about what it means to be a young black woman. Um, I think that we've reached uh, an, an age or, or, a, or a society um, where Black women are finally finding, or not finally, but finding voices and being able to speak up and say, hang on, I don't actually like this. And I think that um, with a lot of these schools, you feel like you have to give up part of your identity in order to fit in. And I think that that's a big problem. I think that um, if we're going to talk about multiculturalism and being diverse, then we need to embrace that. And I think we should try and stifle people and say, well, um, you know, you're not allowed to have your hair like this. Um, I think that's a bit of a problem. And I think secondly, not only is it the hair, I think um, there's also been, I, I was speaking to some other friends of mine who were saying to me who, who actually go to Girls High, that there was a girl who wrote about white privilege or, or dismantling whiteness and she was called to the principal's office or she was um, uh, threatened with a disciplinary hearing. And I think, it's, I think it's this idea that somehow there's something wrong with being black and that that needs to be silenced. 
and the way in which that's going to be silenced is, is by using things like the code of conduct. Um, I think that it, it needs to be looked at um, uh, the way in which kind of we have these schools engaging um, with people of different races. And I think it's, it's more than just an issue of, okay, well, uh, your surface level, uh, your hair looks like this, your hair looks like that. I think it has a deeper meaning and, 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 and that it's important that these things are addressed. So now that's a wonderfully succinct summary of, of, of all the issues, I think. So thank you so much for chatting to us and for, and for using your voice to represent some of the girls who are still at school. Thank you. Can I just say that um, I'm an old girl of this one. I just want to, I suppose, deflect um, uh, attention and, and, and kind of praise those ladies um, up for the black girls at the Torah High School for Girls um, who have taken up the, 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 the baton, mm. I suppose, and mm. decided that they want to move forward with this. Mm. I think that uh, looking at kind of sentiments on Twitter, there is a lot of old girls are speaking out about us and saying we didn't have the courage to do this um, when, when, when we were still in the school. Um, so I think I just basically want to praise those girls once again and just echo my support for them and just say thank you, ladies, and just well done to them. Um, and especially to the matrix, because the matrix are, are writing prelims. I know they have their first exam today. And to have the bravery to, to tackle this um, head on at a critical time in their academic careers, um, I think is, is, is a huge sign of bravery. Um, yeah, so I think as much as I thank you for, for, for your compliments, I think I just want to say thank you um, as well to, to the black ladies um, at Girls High who have basically used this not only to raise issues at Girls High, but issues um, across uh, so-called uh, uh, privileged schools or, or schools and they have good names. So I think that a lot of the, the thank you or the, or the praise needs to go to all of them. Thank you. All right, wonderful. Thanks, Sinazo. Oh, Sinazo Magarlele, who's a formula... I mean, former, sorry, Pretoria Girls student, uh, articulated in 2015. Um, he was, you know, doing a great job of really breaking down why this is not just about hair um, and how a rule that can appear fair in that all the girls must adhere to him can be discriminatory, um, which which I think, yeah, which I think speaks well to a lot of the questions of people saying, what's the big deal is just hair? What's the, what's the big deal? All schools have rules. Offices have rules and so on. Um, next up, we'll be speaking to somebody who's done deeper research into this. Uh, that's Panasha Chigumazi, uh, who's an author, scholar. Um, we've had her on uh, on a previous show discussing her fiction book, Sweet Medicine. Um, more pertinent to this discussion is that as part of the Ruth First Fellowship last year, um, she did a study into black students who, who've attended uh, elite and historically white institutions, um, which, 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 which is which is we feel quite central to the conversation we're having. What happens when, when people, when, when, when black students who are not historically included in a lot of these institutions suddenly have access to them and, and how do they interact with the structures and the cultures, um, of, of these institutions? So we'll just be chatting to Panache. Panache, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you now. Okay, perfect. Um, so Panache, uh, my first question is just around, around your research and, I mean, we're hearing these, 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 these conversations that are coming out of these protests that are coming out of Pretoria Girls High. And, mm-hmm. and, and I'd love, I'd love for you to tell us some of the responses you got from other people. To, um, it sounds like these, the feedback we're hearing around the rules are this one institution are not, are not, are not unique. This is not, this is not something that, that's happening in one particular school to a few particular girls. It sounds like based on the conversations you are having that this, this is a widely held feeling that, that there's a, there's a discomfort, there's a discomfort among a lot of black students in a, in a lot of these formerly white institutions. Could you talk us through some of what, what came out of your research? Sure. I mean, look, I think what is quite interesting is, is the way in which people respond to it as if it's some sort of hearsay 
Um, as if we haven't been saying this for a while, I'm yet to meet a black girl, black woman who has not been policed in some way or other about their hair. So I would like to stress that schools are not unique. It's just that in other places, it might be a little bit more covert the ways in which we are policed. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. Mm. Um, but definitely the, the experience about that was speaking to just how uh, school codes of conduct would have these sneaky little ways of, of, of sort of regimenting um, black hair um, in terms of, you know, the kind of rules that we're seeing right now, saying that, okay, you know, hair cannot be more than about five, you know, about five centimeters. Um, you know, if it gets past a certain length, it must be tied up and that kind of thing. But again, that's not really taking into account how black hair grows. So there's, a, there's an assumption of what is neat. And what is neat is not the course... Um, sort of what we would call Afro-textured hair that black people have. There's the ideal form of sort of, you know, hair that can be put into a bun, um, which is not necessarily, or in most cases, is not black people's hair. So I, mm. I think it's quite, if you had to just sit at a, go to, to a table at a restaurant and ask, well, what are your experiences with hair? I'm sure everybody would have horror stories about this. So it's, it's also quite amusing to see how people are sort of, gasping about this as if we all didn't know um it's quite interesting um because it's it's, it's you know it's, it's almost as, as common as for example schools regimenting skirt lengths and that kind of thing which is just part and parcel of being a black body um in a historically white school um i mean i i, I find it interesting that you mentioned these horror stories and, and, and the question I'm asking is of course quite central to your research in that a lot of the people in the institutions were mentioning on paper um, have a really great opportunity, right? So these are good, these are good educational institutions. So you're, you, mm-hmm. you know, one can make a lot of assumptions around the kind of grades you will get, the kind of university you will go to, or the kind of access you have. Mm-hmm. So why does a person who has that kind of opportunity to be a Pretoria girls alum and fit in and be head girl and all those things, why would that person revolt? And, and cause and make waves in that kind of institution rather than cling to it and, and sort of claim that, that that opportunity. I'm sorry, just to clarify the question is why revolt? Why not just keep quiet about it? Yeah. Given the, the sort of opportunity. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we're saying it's not good enough that, you know, we have to hide and continue to conceal who we are in order to be part of these spaces. I mean, the spaces in and of themselves are, are very problematic because there's a particular way in which um, we are made to conform to a particular standard. So a lot of these schools, um, whether it's the African schools or the, the English schools, it's particular standards of whiteness. And that's not just across here. It's ideas of, you know, what is, um, you know, good English, what accents are acceptable, um, what kind of school songs and traditions we have. Um, they're definitely schools that have continued uh, really from the, the day pre-1994 days right up until now. So really the assumption of us being able to be in those spaces is on the basis or rather the conditions for us to be in those spaces is um, the ability to assimilate. Um, and I guess that would really differ from person to person whether assimilation uh, is something worth doing. For me, it's not. And, and, and you know, I come from or I'm interested in a black consciousness um, and for me it's simply not acceptable. Um, ideally for me we would have to start new schools completely that from first principles into blackness. Mm. Um, however, I also do think that it's important that these institutions are made to 
um, change because they've been subsidized historically by budget education. We know the kind of discrepancies that were spent um, on white school, um, school children's um, education versus on black children's education. But that infrastructure was really subsidized by the inferior education that black people have. So therefore, we have every right to be in those institutions, and every right for those institutions to reflect us as a majority black country. So you're not buying this idea of that, if, or if you're not fitting in, or if you don't like this school, you can just go to another one that suits you better? No, I mean, that's incredibly anti-black, you know, because, <laughs> first of all, the resources to go and, you know, create a new school and to go somewhere else is not something... Um, that many black people have. So it's not, I mean, I went to a school that was started um, by a group of white parents who were not happy with the standard of education um, there. But, you know, that kind of thing requires institutional and generational wealth um, that most black people don't have access to. Um, so the idea that you should simply go somewhere else is simply saying we should cede space to races. That, is, that infrastructure was built and subsidized by inferior black education, as much as infrastructure in South Africa is. So the, the, the argument that in South Africa mm. I should simply go to another school uh, is not even one that I, I want to entertain. Okay. Um, I suppose the last question is, is the, the sort of the wider one, the, the bigger one that everybody is mm-hmm. now trying to contemplate of sort of a, what do we do now? Because, I mean, a big part of the South Africa sort of liberation project and democracy was to give people access to places where they were excluded. It's saying now you have the right to be here, the constitution guarantees your right to be here. But now we're seeing that that access is, isn't enough. It's not enough to open a door and say, hey, you can now be here. So what? Yeah. So sort of a question around what is that? What is that next thing that we're not getting right? That's beyond access. Once again, so access is part of a, a project of simply, you know, assimilating what we call maybe an as black and fair model. Um, you know, so again, on the basis that we can conform to standards of whiteness. So these schools, you know, fundamental. I hate to use the word transformation. It's called a decolonization. It needs to be happening at primary and high school. Um, yes, it makes us feel better when a minister or MEC decides they're going to go there by case-by-case basis. So frankly, it's not good enough. These things don't happen in a vacuum. So it needs to be an, a complete overhaul of the education system. It's talking about curriculum. It's talking about school songs. It's talking about uniforms. So many things need to change. And the hair is really just, or the hair issue is really just one symptom of broader issues mm. um, that plague the in education that the education system that was inherited from the apartheid government. Okay. I know that was my last question, but I suppose there is one more that I had <laughs> forgotten about. Just around what, and this completely anecdotal way, we, it seems to be that um, there's a lot of young black people, a lot of young black women in different spaces that are questioning are questioning a lot of things that other people might, or like I did earlier in the show, see as a, a privilege or see as a, as, as a great benefit. So sort of access to university and, and now, for example, access to this elite, elite high school. Is it, are you getting the sense that there's some kind of awakening amongst a lot of middle class, um, young black people? Or is that, is that, does it seem to be sort of a, a, a rise or awakening or awokeness that's 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 picking up in a bunch of different areas or is that is that just yeah. me reading social media i do think so i think to use uh, to use a, a school metaphor i think we've got the report card for the rainbow nation mm-hmm. um and this thing it doesn't work we tried the experiment and it doesn't work and this is not to say there's been people who've been speaking out against the rainbow nation right from the beginning mm-hmm. for example the pac yep. did not join into the data because of you know to say no land no negotiation 
So there's been people who've been able to see that. And many of us in the school, we did try and speak out, but also the, the, the kind of, it was not the kind of thing that was going to go viral or was going to get support. So we're definitely in a different era um, where you can say things, you can question in a way that you couldn't do before. I do think that it is worrying, though, that, that we tend to um, focus on the things that happen in spaces where black people are in close proximity to, to whiteness and white people, so the more middle-class spaces. And what I mean by that is the fact that here in a Model C school, we have young black women who have protested, and we've rallied rightly so behind them. But yet, you know, last year there were many protests by the students of Philippi um, in the Western Cape, um, and there was not much support. They were, they were protesting against the inferior conditions of education that they're receiving there um, at, at, um, uh, from the, the, the DA-ruled uh, government in the Western Cape. Mm-hmm. So that's not something we wanted to protest because that was a majority black school. So I do think that we, we, have, we have been seeing, just like with the universities, we have been seeing protests in predominantly black and historically black areas but those don't seem to be as interesting to us or don't seem to be as emotional for us as the ones when they're in white spaces. So I think it's just that the sort of awakening that the South Africa does not work for black people is finally moving on to the black middle class. Um, and we're happy. It's important that this happens. But I also think that we need to also take stock of the fact that people have been protesting um, and we need to really understand why it is that it's, it's, it, we find it easier to support a child at Pretoria Girls High, and yet we will keep quiet about a child at Philippi. Okay. Can't put it much better than that. Panache, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, perfect. If you're just tuning in, that was Panache Chigumadzi, um, who's an author and who conducted research into the experience of black students who've attended uh, historically elite and white institutions. Um, just lastly, we got a message via WeChat from... From Triple B, that I'll say, um, and and just sharing their experience of matriculating in 2003 um, from Highlands North Boys High, and and having a, an experience where the, where a teacher in front of the whole class um, said that 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 this person should go to the toilet and wash their hair and undo their dreads because it looks like cheese curls. So not only insulting insulting hair that's in its you know. And it's growing in its natural state, but making an example, and it just echoes what is in Greg's great article from this morning, and what's in what we're hearing from Pretoria Girls High School and from a lot of people around the country. Um, that this is commonplace: the use of the code of conduct and the and the and the use of that intimidation by students and a lot of these institutions by teachers, sorry, to make to make a lot of black students feel very uncomfortable about their natural state. Okay, um, now just to change change gear somewhat to look at more regional issues. Um, starting off from here, we're just going back to 2011, where after decades of international diplomacy, including the UN and African leaders and, and a major influence from countries such as the United States and NOAA and the UK, a new country was created at South Sudan. Um, and this was created with a lot of hope and optimism um, and envisioned as a very sort of neat split between the uh, the traditionally Arab, Arabic and Islamic North and the largely Christian South with the assumption that the split of those down the middle would make everything better, so to speak. Um, anyone who's been following the situation somewhat over the past five years um, would comment and say that that's not worked out quite as planned. There's been a lot of violence. There's been a lot of unrest. There's been a lot of death, a lot of displacement, a lot of insecurity. Um, and all that hope and optimism is, you know, scarcely to be found in the in the South Sudan project, so to speak. So this is a country that turned five 
in July, so a five-year anniversary of, of that great moment of hope and optimism. And for that, we're talking to two individuals. That's Justin Lynch, who's an editorial fellow at the New American Foundation, who's worked extensively in South Sudan. And secondly is Jok Madut Jok, who's a co-founder of the Sud Institute and is an analyst on security, governance, democracy, and development in Sudan and South Sudan. So we'll just be talking through the great optimism and, and, the, and, the, and the project that was started through South Sudan and, and, and how that has played out since. Okay, um, so uh, Justin, I'd just love to start with you. If you could just take us back to, to 2011 when things went wrong sort of very quickly. Could you talk us through some of the key assumptions that, were, that, that the South Sudan project, so to speak, was, was based on and, and where those started to fall apart? Sure. Well, I think there were three big, uh, three big reasons why the country uh, um, really fell into um, the trouble that we have seen today. Um, the first one is that when it became independent in 2011, uh, it really didn't have the institutions um, that gave it the ability to govern effectively. Um, there aren't things like a postal service here. Uh, there um, right now isn't uh, power in many parts of the country. It runs on uh, generators. Um, so I think that those, um, you know, uh, everyday services that most governments have um, didn't really exist uh, when it became independent. The second one uh, was corruption. Um, I think this has been called one of the most corrupt um, uh, uh, states, uh, perhaps, uh, in the world, and I think that we continue to see that today. Uh, many groups um, uh, say that the elite um, rulers of this continue um, to get a significant portion of the money that comes in. And I think the third big reason why we have seen South Sudan fall into the state that we have seen it today is the panic fall in the price of oil. Um, South Sudan's government is almost exclusively reliant on oil. Um, it uh, has two big oil fields, and when the price of oil dropped in 2012, the country lost almost all of its revenue. Um, it dropped from over $100 a barrel to um, low uh, 40 um, And so that has really um, um, become a death wish almost for the country. And so all these services that were being funded through this oil um, didn't, um, uh, couldn't couldn't continue, and so I think it was those 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 three reasons why was country um, not really take off when it gained independence in 2012. Okay, and uh, 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 2011. Sorry, That's 2011. Um, Jock, just turning to you, are they are they are they key things that, in retrospect, and you look back to the 2011 constitution and and then the raising of the flag and that that great excitement? Are they key things that you think the international community really missed when they were setting up this new nation? Yes, uh, certainly the, the most obvious uh, would be the fact that so many horrendous uh, episodes of violence that had taken place between South Sudanese themselves during the Liberation War, uh, all of which uh, the justice for these actions was postponed uh, in order to keep everybody's attention on the main prize, which is uh, to gain independence, uh, in hope that when such independence is attained, uh, there would be a revisit to those uh, issues, so that justice is uh, is done uh, and reconciliation is, uh, uh, is is achieved between the various communities throughout South Sudan. 
so that every citizen would feel that they have a stake in the country. These mm. uh, these were not done. Uh, no reconciliation effectively was uh, was was carried out, and no uh, effort to to offer uh, any kind of recompense to these various communities. So everybody remained uh, aggrieved, and and when. Uh, um, the conflict uh, erupted. Uh, everybody responded uh, to that conflict with that history in mind. That is one. The, the, the second is that um, uh, the country embarked on state building and the international community put all its weight behind that effort to, re- to build the institutions of the state, which was a kind of a vertical approach to... Uh, to building South Sudan. Uh, but the other side of the coin, which was missed, is a kind of a horizontal um, uh, effort to try to to build a sense of collective nationhood among all South Sudanese so that every citizen feels that they had uh, a stake in the body politics. So nation-building part of, 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 of that effort uh, which is uh, only one side of the coin from the state building, uh, did, did not take place. So uh, the idea of getting South Sudanese to graduate from their citizenship in their tribes into citizenship in the nation mm. was not achieved. And, and, and so uh, most South Sudanese remain more closely and tightly loyal to their regional and ethnic uh, uh, background and not to uh, a, a collective entity called South Sudan, and so when uh, when those things issues that were raised just by the previous speaker like corruption, like the lack of services, when all these things were happening, the the, the lens through which they were seen was that of ethnic uh, identity rather than of national identity. Okay. Justin, turning back to you, um, a, a big story of the, a, a big theme of the story of South Sudan is centered around two people. That's the President Rek Machar, I mean, former, uh, first vice president, sorry, Rek Machar, and the President Salva Kiir. Is the, is the fact that so much depends on one might say the incentives or the whims or the, or the egos or the networks of just two people in a whole country. Is that an indictment of, of how the process was set up, that everything depends on the cooperation or lack of cooperation or, or motivation of, of these two centers of power? I think that was certainly one of the issues that got us in trouble uh, the last uh, peace deal, which um, was uh, signed in August. Um, it was almost exactly one year ago. It placed... Um, President Kiir and uh, rebel leader uh, Riek Machar kind of at the center of the country's politics. Mm. And what we saw was um, Riek Machar um, didn't come back to the country for eight months. And it really kind of held all of the government hostage. Um, They couldn't really do any business. And they kept trying to negotiate and get him back to country. Um, He would argue that that, um, uh, there were reasons for that. But uh, nonetheless, the international community was very, very frustrated um, because he didn't come back to the country. And um, you know, this dynamic between President Kier and um, um, React Mashar, um, there was a lot of tension there. And, of course, this erupted in July uh, when there was fighting between their two armies in the capital. 
So I think what we're seeing now is a shift away from this plan to keep these two men at the center of East Coast politics. And I think what diplomats are very quietly trying to do is push uh, React Mashar um, aside, um, you know, uh, very uh, subtly. Um, they have said, uh, diplomats have said that they would work uh, with um, Tabang, who was controversially uh, uh, named as the leader of the SBLM-IO party. That was the party that uh, Rehab Bashar um, was the leader of. And Tabang was also appointed as the first president. And so diplomats um, have said that uh, they are going to work with this new um, uh, leadership duo to try and create peace in the country. And like you said, to try and uh, perhaps try a different option uh, than uh, placing these two men at the center of the country's politics. And Jock, when you hear about this new plan and this kind of restructuring to have different centers of power, do you think that there's there's something there? And do you think there's enough incentive from from the leaders either of the state of what are being termed as rebel armies? Is there enough incentive from all these key parties to actually maintain peace in South Sudan? Well, there is uh, both incentive and, and pressure uh, that w- would seem to, to, to compel uh, these leaders to prioritize uh, peace and reconciliation over uh, uh, more violence as a method to achieve political objectives. Uh, one of the pressures is the fact that the country is literally broke and uh, how much uh, longer the country can continue to to engage in, in, in this deadly conflict under these circumstances is questionable. So I think there is definitely a desire on, on, on the side of the leaders to, to want to work towards peace because they cannot afford much longer uh, this violent confrontation. Uh, the incentives also uh, exist, and one of them is the fact that uh, Taban Dengai, who is uh, somebody ha- who has been very ambitious uh, for leadership uh, for a long time, now has the opportunity to to, to try to bring uh, his ethnic group uh, to rally behind him by distributing the portion of the political power uh, that is uh, in Juba to distribute it equitably uh, among all the different ethnic groups, subgroups of, of the Nuer community, uh, so that everybody has a piece of the pie. Uh, and that would be the quickest way for him to render Riyadh Machar irrelevant uh, and therefore uh, reduce the likelihood of many uh, followers of Riyadh uh, who are currently aggrieved prevent them from uh, from uh, continuing to give loyalty and 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 support to Riyadh Machar in case uh, Riyadh Machar comes back with the intention to fight a war to regain his position. So I think there are opportunities and there are challenges mm. uh, that can be uh, utilized uh, by diplomats and, and, and donors and mediators and regional powers to nudge these leaders towards peaceful resolution of these conflicts. For my next question, Justin, I'd actually like to hear from you based on your ties in Washington. And I'm curious if you still think the international community still has real influence. A lot of people are saying that 
these threats of arms embargoes and so on are really don't hold as much weight as they used to. Do you still think the international community and the United States in particular still has the kind of influence they once wielded to bring about peace? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I have always believed that the U.S. never has the influence that it um, kind of thinks it has. I think this is true. Um, this is perhaps one of the big lessons of the Bush administration um, in its uh, foreign policy is that if the country's internal dynamics do not want something, then the U.S. can't force that to happen. And I think South Sudan is a classic example. Um, we can go back to this August peace deal. Um, neither... Uh, Riyak Mishar and President Kiir uh, wanted to sign this. President Kiir was very explicit that he was pressured into it, into this. Uh, he says that he was threatened to sign it, and when he did sign it, he included 16 reservations on the peace agreement. And so, in the past year, uh, we've seen the um, international community, and particularly the United States, try and force uh, President President Kier to do things that he does not want. And uh, President Kier has um, gotten his way, more or less. He has been able to uh, circumvent parts of the agreement that he disagrees with, and he's been successful. But it's interesting, when you talk to diplomats in mm. Washington, they kind of take the same approach. Um, they still believe that they can use the arm embargo um, and, and uh, the threat of pulling out humanitarian aid to try and coerce uh, President Kier. And that remains to be seen. But so far, it certainly has not worked. And it's unclear exactly how um, that is going to work in the future. Um, I mean, clearly, you're quite critical of, of the U.S. foreign policy on this. And I'm, I'm curious, is, the, is your sense and is the sense of perhaps other journalists covering this, that this is similar to, a, to an Iraq situation in Afghanistan of 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 American ideals around what freedom is and what their role is in creating freedom and that just being a complete disaster? Well, I think it's not necessarily a criticism. You can talk to diplomats and they will say the same thing. Okay. Many diplomats, um, and when you talk to the former special envoy of Sudan and uh, South Sudan from the United States, he gave a speech saying this same thing in that, you know, it's not necessarily a criticism of the US government, but that the U.S. government uh, isn't the end-all, be-all in this omnipotent power. Um, when you know a country and its leaders don't want something, whenever the U.S. tries to force this, we've seen how that has backfired. I think South Sudan is a case study of this. Um, the internal dynamics of the country are taking it in an opposite direction than what the U.S. is trying to force it on. And the country um, has pushed back, um, and they have... Um, and we've seen the limits of the U.S. trying to force things on countries. We see that here. We see this in Iraq um, when we saw the Shia, um, sorry, the uh, Sunni uprising uh, in 2007. Um, and we see that also in Afghanistan, where the U.S. Uh, tried to do um, uh, another um, uh, nation-building task, and the internal politics of Afghanistan were quite different. And so the real story is that uh, the U.S. Uh, is limited in what it can do. Okay, Jock, just turning back to you, I mean, just building on what Justin has mentioned, what what does, in your view, a truly homegrown and a truly inclusive sort of next step or near term look like? What are the key things you you need to see over the you know short term, medium term that you think is a great first step into the kind of long term peace and stability we need to see in South Sudan? 
Well, I think uh, the coming of uh, Taban Dengai on board uh, seems to uh, give uh, indications that there is now uh, an effort to come up with alternative approaches to to what has been proposed by the international community in terms of uh, economic development, in terms of uh, peace and reconciliation, in terms of security arrangements. I think uh, the major criticism of the government of South Sudan all along has been the absence of any kind of homegrown philosophy of, uh, of peacemaking or development. And, and, and in fact, the absence of such a homegrown philosophy has left a playing field for the international uh, community to, to, to suggest left and right. And uh, some of the things that would not succeed, like the arms embargo, like the sanctions, like the uh, intervention force, all of which would definitely fail if there is no cooperation with the host government. And, and so uh, there are now indications that uh, this is exactly what the government of national unity, the current one, Saban Dengai as first vice president, is trying to do, which is to propose uh, uh, these, uh, these, these approaches, that this new approach is one of which will be to, to, to have uh, a country's own uh, program of action uh, uh, with regard to uh, regaining the country, regaining its own footing economically, and 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 this 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 uh, program of action would list some of the basic priorities uh, that the country needs to 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 deal with right now, including uh, stabilizing the economy, um, uh, increasing the level of security and safety of citizens, uh, approaching the humanitarian uh, challenges and and needs. Uh, from uh, an internal perspective, uh, as well as uh, uh, trying to revise uh, some of the revenue sources, uh, taxations, and, and, and uh, rebuilding the oil fields that were destroyed in the war. And then once you have those priorities listed and very clear, you also list some of the uh, financial uh, resources available to tackle these uh, priorities and then uh, produce a deficit which uh, the country will say that they cannot, they don't have the resources to meet these needs and, and invite the interesting, any, interesting, any interested donor from the country to contribute to that which is a, 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 a national plan and not a, a donor's plan. And, and if that was done, then the likelihood of a kind of international bailout uh, would, be, would, be, would be increased. Uh, perhaps a bailout in the form of loans from IMF and, 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 and from individual donor countries uh, would be uh, a lot more, um, it would be easier uh, to, 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 to accomplish and to achieve rather than uh, simply asking for help. Uh, without objectives, without clear uh, uh, plan of action. Okay, thank you. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining us. Justin Lynch, Jock Madhu Jock, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, perfect. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for much for all the people who spoke to us and our guests and for everybody listening in online. Remember, you can download and share the podcast. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. This is cliffcentral.com.